0: Okay, hey, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Salaamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to an amazing Saturday session. Truly amazing because we are now um, starting on the journey with Surah Al-Ma'ida, um, which is such a um, a heavy, heavy night. I mean, you, you feel, or I, I feel sort of the... Um, the weight of it, because you know, as we've said here, this is the last major surah that we um, have not yet, or that Sheikh has not yet talked about, in either the line-by-line form or in Project Illumin. So after we finish this surah, then he will have literally, he will have completed the entire Quran, and that is just mind-blowing. Um, and this journey started, you know, over 20 years ago. Um, and you know, each halakha engagement has been hours long and we've really done deep dives into every single chapter. And so when you think back to everything that we have, have learned or, you know, received, and it's all out there on the internet for people to work their way through, um, it's truly stunning and, um, and truly a gift. And, um, you know, I just wanted to point out, like oftentimes I, like I remember back to when I was an early convert and just not really aware at all about islamic scholarship or islamic scholars i just assumed you know anytime i would hear the word you know scholar someone's a scholar i just automatically assumed that there was this body of knowledge that everyone else knew that i didn't and that it was all kind of more or less the same like everybody i was late to the party i was the last one to join and everyone knew everything but me Um, and as i continued on this journey you actually start learning that it is so—it's uh, like anything else. Um, everything is unique to a person, and it is not that the tafsirs are all the same, or there's this common body of knowledge among scholars, um, or that you know there's any monolith of of understanding of the Quran. and Especially this journey that we've taken with Project Illumin has been just so unique and special. And anyone who spent any time, you know, hearing about the Quran anywhere else. Once you come here and you hear what is presented in Project Illumin, you just feel like you can't go back. It's just in its own class, and um, and I, you know, continue to get so much um, mail and emails and communications from people who have just said that this Project Illumin engagement has really transformed their life. And so, um, you know, if people are just joining on now, it's really amazing. Um, what a gift we've all been given. Um, and if you want to join us on this journey, just to give you an update, you know we started this program called Adopt a Sura, and it was a way to sponsor the publication of this entire tafsir, which we have been working on um, as we have been working through the surahs here in, in you know the Halakas. Um, and we only have eight surahs left out of the 114 yet to be adopted. So um, if you want to join us on this journey, um, definitely, um, go to our website and you can find under the Project Illumin tab, there's an Adopt-A-Sura section. Um, But I just, I want to thank everyone because that actually is a really huge deal um, to have that kind of support. Um, And you know, uh, there's, you know, uh, anyone who joins us on this journey and supports, uh, you know, the work here, the Hastinette is shared with you because, um, you know, we couldn't have done it without everyone's support. So thank you so much. Um, and I wanted to just, uh, again, call attention, as always, to a really important khutbah um, yesterday, which is entitled, Don't Be Stupid About Your Package, and What About Gaza? And so um, what that means about not being stupid about your package is Sheikh talks about how, you know, all of us will um, end up on the final day bringing our package of what we've done in our lives and, you know, and meeting God Inshallah, and you know there's um, it's a really critical point that um, you know, what is in our package, you know, what will we be held accountable for has so much to do with our understanding of, you know, what have we done in this life um, in terms of justice and injustice, what we what we bring, what we could have done. And one of the really, really critical points that Sheikh talks, uh, talked about yesterday, was this idea that you know you we are all everything that we have in our lives is gifted, but you know each person has a unique gift. If you've been given a talent, for example, in music or a talent for philosophy or a talent for, you know, art, um, everyone has that particular gift that you have personally been given. And part of um, what will what you will be held accountable for is whether you took that gift and you and you developed it and you did something with it. And you know, hopefully in the service of God. But you know, it's a little bit mind blowing. It's like if you were given the gift of, let's say, art, and you never developed it, that you know, it, it's a horrible idea that you will be held accountable for that on the final day. And I think about our community and the push for people that. Um, you know are really directed towards pursuing medicine and engineering and you know even though that's not necessarily what they love or wanted but because that was something that they thought they had to do and so this is a really important point but also as Sheikh was explaining you know to well to me afterwards is this idea that even you have to create as a society the means for people to pursue their gifts freely um, and that's something that is, you know, obviously incumbent upon all of us But so the khutbah the yesterday was just really important in terms of understanding like what what we owe um, You know what we owe God in terms of what God has given us um, in, you know in terms of our relationships with ourselves with other human beings and with God directly so um, It's a really powerful powerful important khutbah that everyone should listen to and then at the end the second in the second chutba, um, what I found really Um, troubling was the whole concept of what's happening in Israel with this very right-wing government and what we can potentially anticipate will happen in Gaza once that leadership takes over. And there was a really powerful article that Chris Hedges wrote called Israel and the rise of Jewish fascism um, that kind of laid it all out about (coughs) what is happening and, you know, made the point that this is not conjecture, but this is actually you know what um, has happened in the past some of these characters that have now are now about to assume positions of power in the israeli government for example one of them was turned away from the israeli army because he was too extreme but now he is going to be in charge of what happens to the people in palestine in terms of their security and you know they've been, he's been very vocal i think his last name is uh ben gavir or something like that i'm sorry I don't ben gavir, ben gavir. he has definitely expressed repeatedly how um, you know his support for um, genocide effectively so this is really um, obviously disturbing um, it's you're not talking about something that's really far away we're talking about something that could like literally be in the horizon of the next six months you know us seeing a dramatic change in what's happening and it just is it weighs on me like what do we as Muslims here in America where we have freedom to you know do things about it, what, what are we going to do about that so um, anyway, again, I, I would really encourage you to watch the Chutbah, to you know, look up this article. It's actually, the, the link to the article is in the description for the Chutbah. So you can find Chris Hedges, um, the, the piece on uh, Jewish fascism. It's a really important read. Um, so anyway, um, there's just so much going on in the world and I, you know, like every time we have an opportunity to come here and, and reconnect with our Quran and reconnect with the message here, and now that we've done you know reached this monumental milestone of you know of actually touching every single surah and when we still have more to do thankfully we have a lot of these short surahs left to do in the project Illumin um, approach which as you have seen in the ones that we've done are just dynamite they're out of this world um we still you know have a lot of engagement but this is where the learning and the you know and the grounding um and the comfort i think can come you know through this this education and also the encouragement to to try and think about what we can do to fight um for justice in our world so i'm so grateful for this this entire gift and um so i'm so looking forward to the start of surah Al-Ma'idah. may allah bless this session bless all of our sessions um and you know allow us to hear and learn and internalize what we need to learn so thank you Sheikh. thank you for joining us بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم
1: وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على الحبيب المصطفى محمد خاتم الرسل والانبياء اجمعين المرسل رحمه للعالمين وعلى اله الاطهار الميامين وعلى اصحاب المختارين وعلى من اتبعه باحسان الى يوم الدين Allahumma uh, shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa hlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya rabbal alameen. Grace is right, Surah At-Tawbah weighs upon me. Uh, last night I prayed the and what should I do next? And I thought that the answer that came was quite clear—that I should proceed on to Surat al tawbah uh, Surat al-Maidah. Sorry, uh, Surat al-Maidah, and which uh, is just—I um, mean, this this journey. Which now effectively has covered the entire Quran, but Surah Al-Maida and the few short surah that were were covered in in classical style, but not in Project Illum style. Um, you you can't reach this point without. Without thinking about your own personal responsibility, um, nothing is as terrifying and as weighty and heavy and stressful as the responsibility of the scholar. Uh every time you teach, every time you communicate something, you immediately put yourself on trial, effectively. You put yourself on trial before Allah for the implicit charge of hypocrisy. Uh I have taught what I have taught, but do I rise? to what I've taught, am I personally, as a human being, as a teacher of this material, am I at par with what I've taught? And for all of you, who anyone that hears this, um, if you teach then you've also accepted the responsibility before Allah that your own conduct, your own seerah, your own path in life has to rise to the level of what you've taught. And that is terrifying. Um, and I think you will see even more once we're, inshallah, once we're done with Surah al why it is so weighty and why it is so heavy. Because of my anxiety about my responsibility before Allah, that very simple, simple, but straightforward, but critical issue of Allah saying, well, by teaching a doctrine, there is always an implication, there is always the implication that you rise to what this doctrine demands, that you are as good as what you've taught. And because of the fear of that, I resisted for over 20 years, sharing my journey with the Quran with anyone. Until of course came the other part, which when you suppress knowledge, if Allah has given you knowledge as, as we will see in Surat al-Ma'ida, any knowledge that Allah gives a human being, it is knowledge from Allah. We are but vehicles for what Allah teaches. And um, how, how do you weigh between these two? And it's it's a very... So, but I am persuaded personally, I have a very strong conviction that the approach to the Qur'an that I've represented and that we've gone through has the potential to transform this ummah. And that It is, it harkens back to that moment when the words of this revelation transformed human beings entirely, literally transformed them from the age of Jahiliyyah to an age of civilization and morals. And ethics and values. Uh, did the impossible. Of course, we are living in a time when, you know, I am presenting this material. We are planting these seeds in soil that is struggling to survive. There are so many forces in our world that constantly attack viable Muslim soil and seek to impoverish it so that it births nothing and it nourishes nothing and it grows nothing. Um, Just the fact you know when I started this journey I thought that it is extremely difficult for me to be able to present this material while um, while um, teaching while basically having a full-time job and as usual you make an appeal to the wealthy people of this ummah and you say help in, in something as basic as teaching God's words and God's message. And sadly, I wanted to be surprised, pleasantly surprised, but I wasn't. And it is not the wealthy people that supported this project, it is the common people um the the people who adopted the surah so far are the people who are not the richest of the ummah our plight is in our the 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 ineffectiveness and uselessness of our richest members and what it is often whether an umma rises or falls, is in direct proportion to those who monopolize and hold wealth and what they do with this wealth. I'm saying all of this because now we're very close. You know, I can see the end where these these halakhas will come to a conclusion and the lessons communicated will be out there and starts a new phase a phase that I don't know if I will live to see completed, that's in Allah's hands uh, of trying to publish this material But I have to tell you, it has the taste and the ring of truth. It has the taste and the ring of nur, of the light of our faith, the truth to our faith. And I pray that Allah accepts it from me. And I pray that Allah protects it. And I pray that Allah furthers it. And I pray that everyone that had an opportunity to learn from this tafsir doesn't do what Muslims have become so good at, and that is apathy. That they don't surrender to apathy and just take what they want and basically do nothing to protect or to nourish, to protect the Muslim soil, to protect the Muslim seed to allow something to grow for our future generations. Um, think of how many generations now of Muslims since um, colonialism and since, of course, the crumbling of the Islamic Khinefa, but even before that, since colonialism. Think of how Muslim, how many Muslim generations, their relationship to the Qur'an has been effectively severed. And as a result, how many Muslim generations have come and gone in a state of moral and ethical loss? Their only real relationship with Islam is an apologetic one, is a defensive one. What they do towards their faith is basically try to defend it against perceived attacks and real attacks by others. But there is no growth. There is no hosn. There is no actual goodness. There is no actual Quranic impact. There is barely, barely the survival of the Quranic discourse in a defensive mode. But nothing beyond that. And it is... Muslim apathy, and it is Muslim jahl, ignorance, and it is the wasted resources of Islam. We live in an age where Muslims will invest millions of dollars in a soccer player or a soccer team while there isn't a single Muslim institution that comes even close to the 24 hours, seven days a week, Arab evangelist station that broadcasts from Cyprus, which, or the type of support someone like, compare... The type of support that someone like Rashid Hamami has received to the type of support that someone like me has received in life. Those of you who don't know, Rashid Hamami is a purported convert to Christianity. A Moroccan who what is his background is It's full of obscurity and vagueness, but that's what he says is that he's a Muslim Moroccan that converted to to Christianity. Rashid Hamami has made a career, an entire career. He has no other job. He doesn't have to worry about making a living. He doesn't have to worry about teaching. He doesn't have to worry about any other task other than every day he goes to work all he does is attack Islam. He is on the air, six days a week, every week, supported by millions of dollars. And I know that he is not just supported by money from a wealthy Texan, a woman from Texas. But he's also supported by money from wealthy Christian Arabs, including Coptic Egyptians, including medical doctors here in the United States who are Coptic Egyptians, who donate to Rashid Hamami, checks in of 150,000, 250,000, so that he can every day of every week. Broadcast as six to eight hours a day, doing nothing but attacking the Quran. Is the the guy that posted a thirty thousand dollar reward for any for people who can compose a text better than the Quran? This was a competition he held. And he ended up awarding the thirty thousand to someone. I've mentioned him that competition before, but this is just one. And people are—if you realized how many Rashid Hamamis there are. that, That, if you realize the amount of money that wealthy people spend to attack this faith to put your children and my children, to put our grandchildren in a position of confusion and weakness and defensiveness and shame about being Muslim, because that is the the net effect of all of this, is that your children and my children will go and will eventually get exposed to this material either directly or indirectly and the sense of shame whether expressed explicitly or not about being Muslim and the sense of defensiveness about being Muslim prevents the growth of any viable seed. So we, we have, since colonialism, we have been ex- exerting all our energies in a defensive posture to the extent that nothing grows. There is no added value to anything in terms of Muslim intellectual production. And you stand there and you say, Allah, be considering Allah's message. And what we've learned about the Qur'an so far, and what inshallah we'll learn about Surah Al-Ma'idah, it is as if the opponents of Islam are the ones heeding Allah's message in spending in the path of fighting Islam. Allah exhorted Muslims to spend in the path of Islam. But we—I am not kidding you, people. We don't have a single, not one, not one institution of the caliber, or the funding, or the reach of the television stations, the 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 print institutions, meaning publications, the think tanks, the uh, 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 not you know Usuli institute is is a, 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 a you know exists on a bare budget but real institutes that are actually really funded by millions of dollars that do nothing but attack your faith it is i mean it, i really i i don't know what we what we're going to do when, when the United States opens up an entire television station in the Arab world called Al-Hurra, a TV station called Al-Hurra, and that means it's funded by, you, by tax dollars, your tax dollars and my tax dollars. But Al-Hurra, yes, it represents the American view on current affairs, but it also does something else that is very nefarious. It provides a platform for Islamophobes, for Muslim Islamophobes like Ibrahim Isa. Ibrahim Isa, who again does nothing but cast doubt on the Qur'an, cast doubt on the Sunnah, cast doubt on the character of the Prophet, cast doubt on the character of the companions, is employed by a horror channel, given a very handsome salary from our tax dollars to do nothing in his regular presentation and he writes, by the way, scripts for movies that do the same thing. He writes articles for newspapers. And again, this is just another one example. Or there is another guy, Islam al-Bahiri, who's also supported by our tax dollars through Hora Channel. Islam al-Bahiri is a declared atheist who does nothing. He he. Takes receives his salary from al Hurrah channel, our tax dollars, to trash Islam. So it's not, it doesn't take a genius. It, it, money assigned by Congress to fund a TV station in the Muslim world is in turn using this money to fund people who have an ideological project. They never say one critical word about Christianity. They never say a single critical word about Judaism. Not even Jewish militants who are in power with Begin, I mean with Netanyahu. Their entire discourse is about all the things that are wrong with Islam. And what, on the other side of the coin, we couldn't even get a single wealthy Muslim with all the Muslim millionaires that exist in the world today to fund a scholar of the Qur'an so they can focus on teaching the Qur'an for a year or two. Not a single Muslim among all these millionaires Not a single one of them, I mean, they go and they fund something, you know, I don't want to name institutions, but entirely useless institutions. It is, you know, the disparity between doctrine and reality is what forces the best of our scholars into silence. It's say. what do you say to an, to a paradoxical reality that truly challenges your comprehension, or challenges even your sanity? So, Surah al maidah You'll find, as we will see, there's a lot of in the tradition, a lot of contradictory, conflicting things, and we'll explain the reasons for these, this these contradictory reports. That it is clear that Surah Al-Maida is a revelation around the time of Hajjat al-Wada. And in fact, all the evidence is that after Surah Al-Ma'ida is revealed, the Prophet ﷺ lived only 80 or 81 days. That he died 80 or 81 days, so a few weeks after. Surat al-Ma'idah. And as you will see, Surat al-Ma'idah is in fact a revelation that clearly has in mind the conclusion of the Prophet's journey. So, it is not revealed, and this this will become important later as we... Go through Surah Al-Maida. is not revealed at the time of Fath Makkah. Fath Makkah is in the eighth Hijrah, right? Eighth year. It is not revealed at the time of Fath Makkah. It is revealed later than that. It's revealed the tenth Hijrah. The the a um. Only eighty days before the death of the Prophet, and around the time of Hajjat al-Wada or the final pilgrimage, this is when the the the, the after the conquering of Mecca, <coughs> the Prophet والسلام, returns to Medina, but visits Mecca again for the final pilgrimage and it is in this final year where Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed. And it is very clear that Allah is telling Muslims okay the journey is over and I am communicating to you the last prescriptions. And there is something about Surat al-Ma'idah that um, is never pointed out. That it complements and is a natural conclusion of Surah al-Baqarah. So it comes full circle. You have the principles of the message, the foundation of the message laid out in the Mecca period. And if you remember Surah al-Baqarah, the first revelation in Medina, it applies the principles of the Mecca period in a first and foremost in challenging the idea that Allah picks favorites or that Allah has a chosen people and it lays the foundation for a covenantal relationship that the way that Allah relates is that Allah teaches human beings certain principles and values and that your relationship to your Maker is in in direct proportion to how you relate to these values and principles, the extent to which you embody these values and these principles, and that this is the covenantal relationship. And that the covenantal relationship is not a status. And Subhanallah, in 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 the, as I've emphasized repeatedly, the the, the notion that people are born in a status, that the 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 notion that people are it, sort of the in. Uh, that you know that everything is fated that in the stars in the cosmos in the planets and that part of human beings fate is who is a lower caste and who is a higher caste who's born to be a king and who's born to be a prince or a princess and who's born to be the dredge of society who's born to be a slave who's born to be free a free person And this is entirely challenged by Islam. And as we saw in Surah al-Baqarah, what animated Islam, when Islam is the meaning of monotheism, and that the meaning of monotheism is that you submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but that submission to Allah frees you as opposed to everything else. And that there is no birthright status. That the whole idea that there are people born to be poor or people to be born to be rich, people born to be slaves, people born to be free, uh, free uh, men or women, that, that this is entirely challenged by and it takes Muslims or it takes human beings back to a reminder of what a covenantal relationship means. Mind you, that when Allah talks about the Israelites, having corrupted the, 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 the um, doctrines of a covenantal relationship, they corrupted it by the doctrine of a chosen people, that we are God's people regardless of what we've done with the covenant. And that Christians have also corrupted it by the whole idea that there is an original sin, and as long as you accept Jesus Christ, then you're God's people, God's chosen people, regardless of what you've done with the covenant. And the, the part, and remember, this is pre-Protestantism, pre-Reformation, so the Catholic Church was anchored in the idea that as long as... You are good with the Catholic Church. That is the full representation of the covenant with God. You need not worry about anything else. And from the time that Surah al-Baqarah comes, giving effect to the Quran of Mecca, Surah al-Baqarah comes and challenges all of that and says, that's nonsense. The relationship between a human being and their God is direct and personal. There's no entitlement. You can't take God for granted. You can't take God, the covenant for granted. You can't take your status for granted. And this is the Islamic revolution. And then we... We took our journey with all the demonstrative examples that we saw during the Medina period, all the ups and downs and all the mess- lessons that Allah imparts to Muslims, until we now come to Surah al maida and how Allah is going to close this message so that this becomes the inheritance of Muslims for ages to come, until the hereafter, until the final day. What Muslims are going to carry. And look at how Surah al-Ma'idah begins. This beginning deserves pause and reflection ya ladina amanu ufu bil'uqood the very beginning of surah al-ma'idah this is after mecca has been defeated this is after the battle of khaybar this is now where the muslims are going on a pilgrimage and they hear the prophet tells them you know i don't know if i'm going to be with you next year although the those who are faithful are in denial but they can tell that the prophet ﷺ, is getting old and that you know the, the, the idea the thought of the prophet ﷺ, parting with them um, is something that is worrying them and the first words of Surah Al-Ma'idah, ufu bil'uqud. Now, so the first words is, and Muhammad Asad translates it as, be true to your covenants. Now, Muhammad Asad is, Probably right in translating it as be true to your covenants instead of honor your contracts. I'm not sure why he chose, because he doesn't explain why he chose the word covenant instead of contract for uqud. But Allahu A'lam, but I think that. Having studied Surat al-Ma'idah in its totality, he realizes that the Aqud mentioned here at the beginning of Surat al-Ma'idah is not talking about just marital contracts or commercial contracts. but it is talking about every promissory situation that human beings find themselves in it's as if the first the, the first words of surah al maida is you want to understand or you want to know the principle upon which all morality, all virtue is built. It is the simple principle. You exist within a relationship of obligations, whether explicit or implicit. What is the proof of this? Is that even so many commentators, when commenting, commenting about the beginning of Surat al-Ma'idah, they... Said, well, the opening of Surah al maidah makes us think about all the aqud that in fact in all the promissory or all the obligations or relationships of obligation that bond or tie a human being from the time a human being comes to existence. And this is what I've mentioned in the khutbah. That There are contracts, or if you will, obligations, covenants, that are owed to God. There are contracts, obligations, owed to other human beings. And there are obligations, or covenants, owed to the self. And that there is no right without a corollary corollary duty. So your relationship with Allah everything that you receive if you were if you are qalil al-adab if you have no manners you are a person of ill manners you would say what Allah gave me are gifts of entitlement and I owe nothing in return and you would say well you know I didn't ask for this, so whatever I receive from Allah is a windfall. It's like, you know, well, you've sent it to me, you've gave it to me, I'll enjoy it, but I owe you nothing. But our ancestors actually discussed this at length and said, but this is the posture only of people without akhlaq, without manners without virtue it is not virtuous for you to keep receiving and to say i owe nothing in return that is not a person of what a person of karama does a person of honor and dignity does your continued use of what allah has given you as a matter of virtue, creates corollary obligations. But you are also entrusted with yourself. You are entrusted with your body. You are entrusted with your intellect. You are entrusted with your feelings. And you cannot make use of the self without corollary obligations. But this is even ever more so true when it comes to your positions in society. You, and subhanallah, I mean, if if those of you, if you ever get the chance to read Hay uh, the 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 famous text, The Basis from which uh, Robin Robinson's uh, some cruiser was was plagiarized. Um you know that story about a, a a person in the on an island and what type of what what type of rights and duties and so on and what type of innate knowledge. This is an Islamic story. But the narrative of Al bin Yaqzan is anchored in the Quranic ethics of uh, which, again, have influenced the, the European Reformation and the idea of an implied contract, an implied social contract, the, what, the core of Lockean philosophy or, or the philosophy of Rousseau. Or I mean, it is not an exaggeration to say that y- y- you can hardly find any part of Western philosophy that doesn't harken back to the idea... Of an implied social contract in one form or another. I mean there are there are more liberal orientations and more conservative orientations, but the entire edifice of Western philosophy is premised on this and and western philosophers often credit this idea of a covenantal relationship that all social interactions rely on an implied covenant or all political theory it relies on an implied contract to christianity but the only way it works is by saying well it comes from christianity After the Reformation. The reality, though, is that it's actually not anchored in Christian thought or Jewish thought. It is anchored in Islamic thought. The core of morality is a covenantal relationship, an implied moral contract that quite simply says you cannot ask about what your rights are without a proper investigation and admissions of what your duties are. And this is as to social relationships, as to your relationship with God, and as to your relationship with self. This is a little bit um in fact, in Western thinking or in non-Islamic thinking, you notice that social contract theory, which as I said is at the core of so much Western philosophy, Because it suffers from certain core inconsistencies that are never quite resolved, although in theory it says that there is a correlation between rights and duties, a proper critique of Western philosophies, you will find that indoctrinally, the balance between rights and duties is often skewed. That in fact, and I think this comes indeed from Christian salvational philosophy, that you start out by saying, for every right there is a duty, and every duty there is a right. But once you actually start working through your philosophy... You end up affirming a whole host of rights without parallel duties. And because the, the theology of your philosophy has accepted the idea that rights could be a matter of status, not a matter of relationship. I know that this is a little bit advanced philosophy. But for whatever it's worth, for those who understand what I'm talking about, I've got to put it out there. That, remember, the Islamic message comes and says, it is not a matter of status. It is a matter of relationships. At the time, the prevailing moral philosophies in the world, Catholicism and Judaism, affirmed morality as a matter of status. The West, Western philosophy, I believe, has adopted a myth that they have liberated themselves from status morality to relational morality. But I think just... Ob- <laughs> read a a lot of the current Western philosophers, the, the most prominent philosophers in the West, you will find that the entire argument about rights correlation and a relationship between rights and duties falls apart in application as they work through their philosophical problems, where they end up affirming status morality rather than relational morality. Now, why is this so important? Well, to put it quite simply, if you hold a right and your right is not related to your obligations, you could very easily end up affirming egocentric positions. Positions where a person says, I have a right to enjoy what I enjoy, and you know, let the rest of the world go to hell. Or situations where you know, let's say you own a plot of land, and this plot of land, let's let's just pretend to hypothetically, is you know, um, a, 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 is part of you know, you own the uh, uh, Amazon rainforest. And if you destroy, you you own it, it's private property. But if you destroy it, you're going to kill off humanity because you're going to affect the production of oxygen in the world. If your social thinking as to rights and duties is not balanced, you end up having a very difficult time defending the idea of why don't I have the right to do with my private property as I wish, regardless of the social consequences upon others. This is precisely the different, the the Quranic morality, Quranic philosophy, comes and says, this paradigm is insane, it's incomprehensible. Because the idea that you can just simply own a right, regardless of what that right, how that right impacts upon others, is non-Qur'anic. Am I? I mean, are you guys be able to follow what I'm saying? I, I mean, I always I'm trying to to bring to, to not use technical terms and and to just you know bring it down to earth so it's clear, but. It's a very critical point, so Allah comes to to this very last message, and you can imagine, you know, these Muslims, the Muslims who now have gone through this journey of, you know, the hijrah, the the, the battles, and and everything, and they're waiting to hear. at this very late stage what allah is going to be telling them and allah starts with honor your obligations in in a word ufu it's like saying honor your obligations and if you're not with the program you pause and say what instead of telling me you know protect islam fight you know fight for the whatever to preserve your gains this is what you're telling me? And yes, because it is the core of everything. Now, think in retrospect. When you find a, a Muslim with a poor work ethic, what is the core of this poor work ethic? It is the failure to honor obligations. Eight. A Muslim, who there are, what while why why is it that we innately describe someone with a good work ethic as an Islamic ethic, even if you're one of the you know lazy Muslims who, or Muslims who doesn't actually follow the teachings of Islam, but you innately recognize that. The person with a good work ethic is acting Islamically. The core of that is that the, the idea that you are receiving payment and not performing the work innately strikes you as haram. But even if you're not receiving payment the very fact that you gave your word, remember, what is it that we learn about, well, I mean, if you study old Arab culture, not current Arab culture, current Arab culture is, is in the doldrums, I mean, it's, it's just completely trash. But old Arab culture, what strikes you about medieval Arab culture expressed in their poetry is that if I give you a word, I will even sacrifice my life to honor my word. The old Arab culture, people, if they give you their word, not not only can you count on it, but people will sacrifice their entire lives to uphold a word that they gave. That's completely gone now, right? That's completely gone. But that's exactly the attitude that is needed to build a civilization. A people who honor their word. If they say, I will do, they will do. You can depend on me, you can depend on them. If they say yes, it's a yes. If they say no, it's a no. And so when Allah begins with this Ufu what is striking to me is that even in the reports we have from Ibn Abbas, for instance, about this beginning of Surah Al-Ma'idah, is that Ibn Abbas doesn't take it as Allah saying, honor your commercial contracts or honor your marital contracts. Ibn Abbas' reaction, so you know, among the earliest commentators of the Quran reaction to this, the beginning of the Surah al-Ma'ida, is that honor your words. Live up. Don't be people who say, you know, I will do, but then you can't count on them. So, and then I'll show you why Surah Al Ma'idah later on, the, the, the critical importance of Surah Al Ma'idah beginning with this. Now, so right after Allah tells us this, Surah Al Ma'idah, not even in a new ayah, but in, 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 in the right, the, the next normative command. Starts talking about what are or put it the, this way, clarifying normative questions that have cu- have come up, um, but. Focused on, and, and just remember this word for for now. Focused on the shaa'ir Islam, the well. I'll use the word rituals for now, but we'll we'll get more clarity about it a, a bit later. So that, and the, the first sort of issue that Allah starts clarifying. لَكُمْ إلا ما يطلع عليكم غير محلي الصيد وأنتم حرم إن الله يحكم ما يريد يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تحلوا شعائر الله ولا الشهر الحرام ولا الهدي ولا القلائد ولا آمين البيت الحرام يبتغون فضلا من ربهم ورضوانا وإذا حللتم فاصطادوا ولا يَجْرُمَنَّكُمْ شنآن قوم على قوم أن صدوكم عَنِ المسجد الحرام أن تعتدوا وتعاونوا على البر والتقوى ولا تعاونوا على الإثم والعدوان واتقوا الله إن الله شديد العقاب. Okay, so right after أوفوا بالعقود, honor your obligations, lawful to you is the flesh of beasts that feed on plants. behemoth an'am anaam Save what is mentioned to you um, so, just, so, okay. so f- flesh of beasts that eat plants. However, you are not allowed to hunt while you are in a state of pilgrimage. The actual issue that comes up during Hajjatul al-Wada' is a sort of a, a, a practical issue of, well, when we are in a state of ihram, as we are in, in this state of um uh, pilgrimage um, are we allowed to consume meat? and the answer comes very clearly: well, you're not allowed to hunt, but you can eat halal meat basically meat other than the uh, you can eat meat that you you purchase, but you can't hunt the food okay so but this is this is the the sort of immediate specific response is given to underscore a bigger point and I'll explain what's going on in a second okay so believers Allah is warning you that Islam has Isha'ir, the singular of Isha'ir, of sh'a'ir is sh'a'ira, and the sh'a'ir, which we often, you know, translate conveniently as ritual, Isha'ira, plural sh'a'ir are ma'lam or ma'alim, meaning they are what becomes the signs of your faith. So, not every law is isha'ira min sha'air al Not every law is a signpost of your faith. But Allah is putting you on notice that being Muslim is anchored on a set of values but it's also anchored on understanding basic rituals. We don't always understand the reason for these rituals. But there are signposts of the faith that you must honor. So for instance, why is it that meat that is hunted, that is, is meat that we obtain using a hunting dog or a falcon Is halal for us to consume, but meat that we meat obtained by striking an animal on its head, for instance, beating an animal to death, is not halal. There are ritualistic aspects to your face that become like signposts. These are known as shair. And Allah warns you that don't violate, don't dilute what becomes these signposts of your faith. Now, we'll see that this is important because Allah warns us that this is precisely what Recipients, earlier recipients, Jews and Christians did with their religion, and Allah is warning Muslims not to follow in these footsteps. Now think of, think of how easy it is to 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 violate this. You um, when you see, for instance, when um, years ago when I started this tafsir project i remember that someone asked me about the book by written by the late Shahab ahmed what is islam and it is fair to say that one big impact of that book is to try to argue that it is islamic or islamically defensible to consume alcohol and if you go back to my response to this book, one of the things that I found very disturbing is how many young intellectual and intellectualized Muslims, especially Muslims in academia were impressed by the reductive argument of this book that effectively what it does it's the the net effect of the book is to say Islam is not built on any specific sha'ir. This is the natural inclination of human beings is that because sha'ir, the rituals, are often built on things that are not accessible to human reason why do we pray dhuhr barakat? why do we pray al-maghrib three talat rak'at you know it is always easy to try to go in and deconstruct these elements but what allah is warning you at the very end of the Islamic revelation, is don't fall prey to these attempts that come and say, "Uh, you know, why can't we drink alcohol as Muslims? That's what Shahab Ahmed, you know, his book starts out with him drinking alcohol and Uh, uh, someone, a professor, asks them, you know, how could you be a Muslim and you're drinking? And he says, no, I'm I'm from a Muslim family that has always been drinking, and we've been drinking for generations. And in fact, the entire book, I'm going to prove to you that you can be entirely a good Muslim and drink alcohol. There's no problem with that. And then I found all these Muslim kids, including, I've heard, I think it was, uh, uh, you know, who... don't obliviously, don't see the danger of f- jumping on the bandwagon of someone who's saying, well, you know, why should we care if Islam has sha'ir or not? Why Allah, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, exactly, but Allah here is it's telling you don't follow in the footsteps of those before you who received Allah's covenant and lost a lost covenant precisely because of what they ended up doing with Sha'ir. Again, if you are one of the because I I don't know if it's still you know in you know academia has these fads and you know when I was in graduate school it was Harkun's book Rethinking Islam that was the fad and you know all the. Uh, um, intellectualized young Muslims, every Muslim who wanted to be cool, you know, thinking intellectual Muslims was going around blabbing about Arkun's book. It's so cool, Arkun's book, you know, Rethinking Islam. Then, of course, in, when I started the, the, this project, it was Jihab's, Ahmad Shahab's book, uh, What is Islam? And oh, and and then I, you know, I would hear all these young Muslims who started drinking because of Shehab Ahmad's book, and started drinking alcohol, and saying, oh, you know, yeah, you know, why should the texts be privileged with meaning? Why should you know the experts of law be the ones who call the normative obligation? But effectively what they've done is they've de- deconstructed all normative obligations in Islam, including all the sharia of Islam. So, I mean, if you want to see an example of why precisely Allah warns us about لا تحل شائر الله that is sha'ira, it's a signpost. It is what Allah delegates to you as in as in a covenantal relationship of you are obligated to take care of it and honor it even if you don't understand it okay now what follows that is and this is so honor the shayr and as as we we, we talked about shayr Washar al There There is a discussion here about what that expression al haram The sacred month is what is intended the sacred months of pilgrimage or what is intended the sacred months, which as we know is Rajab, Muharram, Dhul Qadah and Ramadan and Dhul Hijjah. Um, uh, Muhammad Asad in his translation puts in brackets the sacred months of pilgrimage I don't agree with that I think he's wrong I think what Allah is saying is that don't Allah knows that it the challenge will be to actually honor the sacred month. Which we've talked about earlier, that it will be really a challenge to treat Rajab and Dhul-Qadah and Zulhijjah and Muharram as a sacred months and to give them their due, to put postpone conflicts, to if to postpone even you know to go out of your way to prevent to avoid any bloodshed this is i mean critical and we've talked about this critical for the concept of secret time there are 4 months in the year that Allah is putting you on notice these months you are to avoid conflicts avoid rancor, avoid bloodshed, and as we in fact saw, it didn't even take that long for Muslims to completely violate that covenant. To the point that most Muslims today don't even, these four months, if they are even aware of the coming of Dhul-Hijjah or Dhul-Qadah or They don't mark them in their psyche. Tell me how many Muslims in the world will say, you know what, I have a temper problem, but I cannot allow my temper to flare in the four sacred months because that would be truly haram. Or... You know, I, I, I argue with my family all the time, but I cannot be argumentative in the four sacred months because that's truly haram. Or I have a depression problem, but it would be haram for me to indulge in my melancholy in the four sacred months because Allah's eyesight is particularly on me on, during the four sacred months. That ethic is completely obliterated. You see how easily we obliterate Allah? This is sha'ir, I'm in a sha'ir. So when Allah comes and says, now, this is at the very end, I am entrusting you that you will honor the fourth sacred month. then, al Now here, that Muhammad Azhar translates is, nor against the Garland's offerings, offerings, nor against those who, so, okay. Wal al The pre-Islamic Arabs would mark the animals that were going to be sacrificed as offerings with a a a uh, was a particular um, uh, garland i mean that's the word for it it's, that's a, it's a qilada uh, uh, something that is put around the neck And some Muslims, just because this was a practice by pre-Islamic Arabs, started saying that it is un-Islamic to put these garlands around the necks of animals or these mark these that. You know, literally, like a, what we call later on becomes a, like a noose, or a, what do you call that thing you use for, collar, like a, a, a collar, like a, a, like collars. So i would saying, you know, it's haram to 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 imitate to, to use garlands because just because the pre-Islamic the kufar did so, and this here. It, which will, which will complement a message in Surah al the further comes. Out, Allah says, "This is not the issue. Just because you want to be, just because they did it, it doesn't mean that the Islamic thing is not to do it. What matters is that you cannot divert." animals that are being slaughtered on this occasion for a purpose other than what they're being slaughtered for. The hadith are animals that are being slaughtered to feed the poor. What Allah cares about, not whether you put a garland around their neck or you don't put a garland, that as was, in fact, because I actually investigated this, as one of the corruption schemes that kept reoccurring depending on whether you had a good government or not, is that people would try to divert the meat of the slaughtered animals and pretend that these were donated to charitable purposes, but in fact they were usurped by merchants who sell that meat on the black market. And subhanAllah, it's I mean, the reports we have of this is happening like a couple of hundred years after the revelation. But subhanAllah it's, it, it, Allah is it's like Allah is telling us what Allah cares about is that there be no corruption in this process. Okay. Wana amin al haram. فضلاً من now here this is this is the this is one of these parts that is really to me. ولا أمين البيت and you cannot disrupt in the same way you cannot disrupt the sha'ir. you cannot dilute the sha'ir. you cannot deconstruct the sha'ir, right. you also. Yeah, and and the sacred month and the sacrifice the the the, 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 the meat for its purposes. Amin al-bayt al-haram are those who seek to go to pilgrimage. So those who had so Muhammad Asa translates it as nor against those who flock to the uh, sacred uh, to to the Haram to to the Kaaba, seeking favor with the, their Lord. Now, when I looked into the various commentaries and various bu- books on on fiqh about Ammin al bayt al-Haram, so what you have here is that Allah is telling us the Amin, basically people who are are uh, going are 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 heading to the sacred temple, right? And Allah is saying, you cannot interfere with this. In the Islamic tradition, until colonialism, this was understood as an obligation to facilitate the paths for all Muslims who are seeking to go to Hajj. And in fact, what emerged is a collective um, ethic that various Muslims must or they could if they don't collaborate on anything at all, at a minimum, they must collaborate on facilitating a al-Bayt, facilitating the past of those who had to Hajj. Now, that ethic with the birth of the modern nation-state completely disappeared because after the birth of the modern nation-state, it became a single country that says, I am responsible for Hajj. No one else gets to have any input on in Hajj. But what is even, and, and this, by the way, for those graduate students who want to find something, you could, you know, you could research this and write on it. The juristic debates on the first time of the use of visas in regulating Hajj. You know, we today act like it's, that's no big deal. But it's one thing to say I am regulating because I don't want there to be such numbers where it poses a danger to people's public health, that people will crush each other because of the crowds. It is quite another to regulate it, to profit from it. That is in contradiction, in my opinion, to this very revelation. You can't profit people from hajj. You can't regulate it by saying, if you have money, you can come, but if you don't, or you know, we give this task to you know, we are we want to profit or make uh, make this a source of income for our GNP. character Saudi Arabia, Hajj is the is the second. Largest source of income after oil. It's oil than Hajj or, or Hajj and Umrah. It is only in the modern age, and, and I'm talking about the last 70 years or so, that this has been accepted as an orthodox position that you can actually profit. And in fact, most jurists, when they were asked, well, we need to regulate hajj because of numbers, they said "Then you have to do it through qura, you have to do it through uh, a lottery system. It can't be in in relation to money. And because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, wala ameen albayt, you can't, create obstacles in the path of those who are seeking. Now, when you add to this the political regulation of Hajj, that those who are politically okay with Saudi Arabia get to go, and those who aren't might be arrested in the airport and turned over to the Egyptian government or turned over to the Emirati government. People... I mean this is why I'm telling you in maida so painful Ma'idah I can't tell you the 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 amount of sleepless nights and, and because you you stand there and you say okay uh, uh, you know Allah guide me w- w- how do we get out of this we we've, we've ended up Messing up so much. So how do we get out of this? The commercialization, and 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 this is the 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 when I say walhad, you know everything that that the the entire edifice of Mecca and and the Hajj and especially in Hajjatul Wada is that rich and poor had the same opportunities the same means there, there you there was no distinction between the tent of a rich person and the tent of a poor person Part of that is that the Kaaba remains the Kaaba in its most basic uh, uh, geomet- geometrical form. This square represents a core of unity, represents the covenantal relationship between. Allah and human beings and represents egalitarianism that around the Kaaba especially in the Haram I mean not just the immediate Haram but the entire area of the Haram, the larger Haram that all buildings are never allowed to rise above the Kaaba explicitly so that you control disparities in wealth, so that you are maintaining an egalitarian ethic in the vicinity of the Kaaba. People appear before the Kaaba equal in appearance and equal in accommodation, quite explicitly, and intentionally so, all of that is gone. And and the ease by which Muslims today, and by the way, just if you check with your grandparents, you'll find that they still remember the time when it was commonly accepted that it is haram to go to the haram and to enjoy luxuries unavailable to others. I mean, to to the extent that I still remember the entire debate, this was in, in my parents' age, when it was debated whether it's halal for someone to take with them a fan to uh, the haram because, well, if you're going to have a fan, what if others don't have a fan? And, and I still remember, like, you know, the extent to which they went to shiyukh and they asked them, you know, is it okay to take a fan? Is it, you know, it was one of these battery-operated fans that uh, uh, today you will find Muslims just without a second thought, Making bookings in what is it, the Hilton or Sheraton or around there, and, and just, you know, without a second thought. Oh, yeah, we'll, 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 you know, we'll sleep in luxury and wake up in luxury, and we don't need to think about what those who are without means, what their accommodations are. this is a, a truly a colonization of Islam to the core because you're not even remembering the the, the the original morals or virtues of the faith okay okay then of course Allah says and why is fastadu, that if you are uh, you know once your state of ihram is 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 ends then you can hunt again this this is because the issue came up specifically of whether we can hunt in a state of ihram now there are hints of an economic um, is that some people ask well if we can't hunt then how are we going to eat meat and it seems that the, the the response was it is or how are we going to eat because they didn't say how we can eat meat they just say how we're going to eat and the, the response was it's that it, that it is the obligation of the people in mecca to Provide for those who are a state in Ihram. So if someone needs to be fed, it has to be through the institutions of charity that exist in Mecca. Um, but that's, I mean, that's a sort of a, an, an interesting larger historical issue that requires more research. Okay, now. That is immediately followed by This is the core of the Islamic covenant. So do not let your enmity or your hatred of a people because they barred you from the Masjid al-Haram, lead you into transgression. But rather help one another in furthering virtue, what taqwa, God consciousness. And do not help one another in furthering evil and enmity. And remain conscious of God, for behold God is severe in retribution. Okay, now There are a number of reports that are puzzled, they're puzzled by by the message in this revelation because it says, don't let the fact that these people prevented you or prevented you from access to al Masjid al-Haram, lead you into transgression. And they said, well, that really doesn't happen in the 10th Hijri year. It happened in the 8th Hijri year. It happened when Muslims thought to go to Hajj and the Kuffar prevented them. This is before the, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah." And before Mecca was defeated. And so some speculated, well, maybe this, this, poor, this ayah was revealed earlier, while the beginning of Surat Al-Ma'idah was revealed and the, the rest of Surat Al-Ma'idah was revealed later. But there's nothing to support that, other than your, the historical speculation that, well, this type of message of don't let the inequity of others prevent you from doing what's right seems to fit the events of the the eighth history year. Other than that speculation, there's nothing to support saying that this part of Surah Al-Ma'idah was revealed two years earlier. So, But, what was going on to invite such a message? Two things. One is the attitude or the report that Ibn Abbas relates to us that some Muslims thought that it is incumbent that the, the 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 habits and practices of whatever Mecca followed before Islam must be altered just as a way of, you know, sticking it to Mecca to say, you, you know, we, your old ways don't fit us. And that this type of attitude, which is primarily reactive, I am going to do things differently, not because they're right, but just because they spite you. So that's one. The second, which is even more interesting, is that more interesting and and makes a lot of sense, many of the old-time, or a number of the old-time Muslims, Muslims from the Ansar, those who fought in battle after battle supporting the Prophet and were very, very worried that after the defeat of Mecca that the Prophet was going to prefer living in Mecca rather than returning to Medina, and they t- told the Prophet, you know, we supported you, so now that you've conquered your, your hometown, are you going to stay in your hometown? And he tells him no. You know, his sense, of, look at the sense of morality and loyalty. You supported me. I can't bail out on you now that even though I love Mecca, and even though this is my hometown, but there is a principle to uphold. And he, in fact, returns with them to live in Medina. But they were vocally questioning the loyalty or the faith of the old, of the foes of yesterday. They're saying, you know, it wasn't that long ago when you guys did everything to prevent us from having access to to Mecca and now you know suddenly when you were conquered when you were defeated you converted to Islam and now you come and often because we are in Medina we're living in Medina you are living in Mecca these Medinian ansar think of the kaaba and the haram as theirs by virtue of islam it's not their hometown but it is what their their very relationship to islam makes creates that bond while the native meccans who converted after mecca was defeated have the hometown advantage they're there on the ground. And now that they converted to Islam, they're going back and trying to jostle or trying to compete for all types of positions in servicing the Kaaba and servicing the pilgrims now under the flag of Islam instead of the flag of Jahiliya, And the Ansar... So, you know some of the prophets are are questioning the motives of these people saying really now you now you're really interested in you know this position where you take care of the muslim pilgrims where just a year ago or a couple of years ago you, you your whole service was for to against islam and the quran comes and says This is not a game of vindictiveness. This is not a game of who has the hometown advantage, who, you know, who's the older Muslim, going back to the issue of status. You have an obligation to be just. And it is not an excuse to say, well, they were unfair to us. And this message, because this is something that had the, being cognizant that I am in the presence of Allah's last message, I was paying very careful attention to how this last message was being received. And subhanAllah, that. All the reports that you find is that this silenced the the chitter's chatter about, well, you know, should they be allowed to do this or allow? Although, again, one can find it. it I mean, their criticism makes perfect sense from a pragmatic perspective, even their suspicions that these people are not perhaps sincere converts, but from a moral perspective, it doesn't. Because you have an obligation, this is not about the dunya, this is about your relationship to the hereafter, and you have an obligation to be fair and just, even if, you have historical injustices inflicted upon you. So, you can't negate practices just to stick it to your opponent, just to, you know, get at them. You can't, for convenience or pragmatism, forget the sacred month and sacred time. You can't just say, well, oh, you know, it's not convenient, so we don't have to do it. You can't, for whatever reason, dilute Sha'a'ir al-Islam. These are the signposts of what define your faith. You can't play games with them to get tenure at Harvard or, you know, you know, you, 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 not allowed, or tenure anywhere else for that matter. And when you, when 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 you pause and you think, is this all premised on understanding the nature of your covenantal relationship with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala? and the answer is absolutely yes. All moral virtues flow from being anchored in that ufu You have a, a contract and a covenant. You have an obligation. You can't take shortcuts and play games with the, the nature of these obligations. Okay, let's take a two-minute break. Two minutes. Uh, And we'll be back. Inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Familiarity makes us pass over. Makes us pass over language. Which, when we are talking about revelation divine revelation that's a very serious problem because the exhortation al-masjid al-haram so there is there is a moral precept in this that you are not allowed to commit aggression. And remember, this is, in Surat al-Ma'idah, this is the last revelation in the Medina period. And we'll talk about this a bit later, but a lot of the claims that unfortunately have become all too accepted by Muslims of abrogation has earlier revelation abrogating later revelation, which is astounding. Even if you accept abrogation, how can the earlier abrogate the later, which is just nonsensical. But Allah, in the last exhortations, like the last commandments, Allah is underscoring that you have, do not have an excuse to commit aggression, even if that is in response to commit an injustice, even if it is in response to an injustice that you suffered. But then what follows is, وَتَعَوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرْ These are, وَلَا عَلْ الْعَدْوَانُ A town is to cooperate, to work together to achieve a goal. When Allah says, and when the Prophet is asked, "What is al-birr?" There are a number of hadiths uh, about this, but some of them, the the Prophet responds by saying that it is. It is what whatever uh whatever is in, intuitively um, un, um whatever it, it, it troubles your heart you you know in your heart is wrong that is contrary to Bir. but another set of reports the Prophet ﷺ summarizes al-birr by saying al-birr al-bir al-khuluq. It, back, it harkens back to that basic question of what are good or sound ethics. What is virtue? Because the Qur'anic command is that we work together to achieve al-birr. And birr is, is even a step, it, it, it is, best, it, closest translation in English is virtue because it is beyond the good. It is not just to achieve what is morally acceptable or even what is morally uh um what is morally laudable or plot or, or praiseworthy, but to go beyond that to what is the higher moral ground and Sometimes we understand things or what helps us understand things is the contrast to things, is, is the opposite. Al-Ithmu al-Idwan. So, Idwan, at a minimum, is any state in which you commit an aggression. Well, you can't understand what is a transgression without first having an understanding of what are, are the balance of rights and duties that are accrue a human being because an aggression or a transgression is violating the set of rights that are owed to another. If you don't have an understanding of rights, then you will not have an understanding of aggression. But while the sha'ir are explicitly revealed to us by Allah, Allah defines to us what the shair is. What is sound virtue, what is birr, what is adl, what is contrary to adwan, Allah relies on what is known to us intuitively. It's like it's, it, you know. It's precisely morality is like the soil upon which you plant the seed of Islam. The seed of Islam will not grow. Will not grow in an immoral soil. If the soil itself is corrupt, it will produce nothing. If even it might. the the seed might ultimately be overtaken by weeds but that is core that your charge as a society is to work with one another in achieving bir and taqwa taqwa of course is God consciousness think of everything that would be required educationally that would be required in terms of our social dynamics that would be required in terms of our social habits in order to promote God consciousness Parts of God consciousness cannot be a an, an Allah, that if, if, you were, if what you teach results from people being uh, turned off the divine People be, being led away from the divine because the teachings are incomprehensible or the teachings are harsh or the teachings are not beautiful. That is not going to achieve taqwa as God consciousness. Taqwa the relationship between the teachings of justice and teachings of God's consciousness, it's like an umbilical relationship. It is inseparable from one another. If you allow for people to grow with oblivious to justice or ignorant of justice, or accepting that God and injustice can exist with one another, invariably that will undermine God-consciousness. I mean, I've... When I wrote The Search for Beauty in Islam, the whole concept of beauty is anchored in the notion of bir as a necessary corollary to taqwa, to God-consciousness. Because human experience shows that the dynamics of God-consciousness becomes skewed and corrupted when it is anchored on a platform of injustice and ugliness and cruelty and harshness. In order to get human beings to be in a state to develop the potential of God-consciousness, you can only do so by human beings seeing that those, the same advocates for taqwa are also advocates for birr. Meaning, that if I see that the same people who are advocating God-consciousness are also the advocates for justice and goodness and beauty, that will help my God-consciousness. But, if the advocates for God-consciousness are not advocates for justice or goodness or beauty, which is the state we have today among Muslims, what happens is that people's understanding of God-consciousness becomes skewed and corrupted. That is why in the Quran, you always find bir tied to taqwa. Al-bir wa taqwa. Allah alerting us that they go together. You, you can't rip them apart and pretend that it's workable. Okay. I mean, you know, if we had modern real modern institutions of Islamic learning, real Islamic learning, not the the nonsense that goes on, you you could have an entire discourse develop on just that al-bir-husnul-khulq to understand husnul-khulq and to understand Hosnal in the modern moment and to understand what is it and what parts of Akhlaq are immutable and eternal and primordial and what parts of Akhlaq are circumstantial and precisely working out the relationship between Akhlaq and the I mean, all of these are, it's exactly that when, when our ancestors exploded upon the scene with an intellectual civilization, that's the, that's the whole difference between them and us, is that they were investing their resources in these types of questions that they took very seriously. Muslims of today don't take Words seriously, and as a result, they don't invest in investigations of knowledge because they really don't understand what is there to know. I mean, you, you, the reason you can't convince wealthy people to invest in something like this is because they have no clue. Why would something like Bitternataka need an investigation, or need an investment? Or why do you need highly learned people to discourse about bir and taqwa? Why can't you just have you know the, the rhetorical speeches that we have uh, where you cite a few hadiths and cite a few ayat uh, and then you, you go on? And, you know, educated money is smart money. Okay. Then, and I will, I will give, I will come back and, and, and sort of give an overall explanation later on. But for now, then Allah moves on to underscoring the the basics of al Islam. The Still, we are on the topic of what are the core precepts of this Islamic faith that the uh, the core um if you will um foundation upon which you cannot claim that you have an islamic religion at all so surah al Ma'ida moves on to underscore hurrimat 'alaykum al-miitatu wal-damu wal-lahmu al-khinzir wa ma uhilla li ghayri allah bih wal-munkhaniqah wal-mawquzah wal-mutaraddiyah wan-natihah wa ma akala as-saba'a illa ma zakkaitum wa ma bil aslam. dhalikum fi اليوم يأث الذين كفروا من دينكم من دينكم فلا تخشوهم وخشوني اليوم أكملت لكم دينكم واتممت عليكم نعمتي ورضيت لكم الإسلام دينا فمن اضطر في مخمصة غير متجانف لإثم فإن الله غفور رحيم يسألونك ماذا أحل لهم قل أحل لكم الطيبات وَمَا عَلَّمْتُم مِّنَ الْجَوَارِحِ مُكَلِّبِينَ تُعَلِّمُونَهُم مِّمَّا عَلَّمَكُمُ اللَّهُ فَكُلُوا مِمَّا أَمْسَكْنَ عَلَيْكُمْ وَاذْكُرُوا اسْمَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَرِيعُ الْحِسَابِ okay so again and this will will see how this ties to talking about the recipients of earlier religions or uh, the earlier message but allah ta- underscores that what has been what is prohibited for you muslims they, uh, let's use the translations faster okay um, okay um, it's okay so forbidden upon you for you is carrying the, the, basically the, the meat of dead animals, or man, animals that you find dead. And blood itself, blood fa- co- blood found, cooked with the meat of animals is halal. But the consumption of blood alone is haram. So, carrion, of course, is is dead animals, blood, and the flesh of swine, pigs, and anything, in principle, anything upon which that was killed without invoking Allah's name. I'll come back to this in a second. And anything that has been beaten to death or strangled or killed in a fall or gored to death by another animal or savaged by another beast, so animals which um, were killed by other animals, the exception to this are animals killed by animals that you've trained as hunting animals. The exception to this are like hunting dogs or falcons, hunting falcons. Uh, In the old days, sometimes people would train um, other beasts to be used as hunting animals. However, with hunting animals there is a, a juristic debate as to whether you must catch the prey before it dies and slaughter it ritualistically. So in other words, it, 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 the falcon, the, the, or whether in fact it's okay even if the animal had died. Because it was attacked by a hunting animal, as long as you once you once you gain possession of the hunted animal, you mention Allah's name on it. I don't want to get into the the details of the juristic debate because it's not, um, you know. I I don't know how many of you use hunting animals these days, but and of course. So the the principle is that the the meat, the, the flow of blood outside of the animal that is consumed, that's one. But more importantly, that anything killed must be killed Allah's name having been mentioned on it. That is, as I mentioned before, and as the Quran says before, that you cannot take a life. The only reason, the only claim that you have in taking the life of something for your own survival is that you are doing with, doing it with God's permission. But for God's permission, you would have no right to kill anything for your own survival. Okay. So, notice here that when God refers to Animals trained as hunting animals. The expression is is fascinating. Um, I'm blanking out. Yeah. Um. I skip. Oh, that's why I skipped ahead a little bit for verse four. But anyway, it's okay. So, وَمَا عَلَّمْتُمْ مِنَ مُكَلِّبِينَ مِمَّا عَلَّمَكُمُ اللَّهُ What you've trained, teaching them from what Allah has taught you. This is a consistent Quranic. Attitude towards knowledge. It, you have knowledge that you impart and you could impart even to an animal in training an animal. But all knowledge flows from the source of all knowing, and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is why your ancestors maintained or their attitude towards the suppression of the pursuit of knowledge was that it's such a huge sin because what you learn, in fact, you are not learning it. It is Allah teaching it to you. And when you teach what you've learned you are teaching what Allah taught you. In the same way that in in the structure of rights and the our covenantal relationship the money that we say we own, actually we don't own, but we are entrusted with. And the bodies that we say we own, we actually don't own, but we are entrusted with. The knowledge that we acquire, we actually don't acquire. It's not our knowledge. It is God's knowledge that entrusted us with. And that is precisely why you are your your you have your relationship to this knowledge cannot be separated from your moral obligations this is a, a, a you know a bigger issue about can you know in in the philosophy of science in in, in the west you know there is often this whole thing about separating morality from scientific pursuits. In the Islamic outlook, you cannot separate ethics from the enterprise of knowledge because you cannot separate God from the enterprise of knowledge. Every discovery that is made is made because of God and due to God. So. You, you, can't say, you don't say, I discovered. You'd say, Allah led me to discover. Or you don't really say, I learned. You'd say, Allah led me to learn. And that is why when all said and done, when you sit with your bundle of knowledge, core, and I wish our graduate students, would learn this, Muslim graduate students, is that core to your relationship of that knowledge, you know, the, the dissertation that you've wrote, the books that you're planning, the articles that you're thinking about, is core to it, is your relationship with Allah, and Allah having entrusted you with this knowledge. And that is precisely why, if you end up using this knowledge... For reasons that undermine al-Birr wa taqwa, you're held responsible. And that is also why you are under an obligation to use your knowledge to promote al-Birr wa taqwa, not to undermine al-Birr wa taqwa. And the entire thrust of Surah Al-Ma'idah, as we will see, is that including using this knowledge to uphold Shariah al-Islam, to uphold the ethics of Islam, because it is ultimately God's knowledge. And notice that Allah doesn't even allow this occasion to pass and say, you know, you know just use hunting animals. But it says, "When because you teach these animals from what Allah has taught you. So, even as we relate to these animals, and I wish I could remember where I read. It might be. It might be. I have a vague memory that it's it's the book, The Superiority of Dogs, or which, or, or maybe it was Al Farid. I wish I I marked it or wrote it down at the time. Where it, it, it just it was a, a few sentences about why cruelty, or in training animals, is not allowed. And the the the, the passage I can remember the, the 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 words more or less, but I can't remember where I read it. It basically says that it, because the whole dynamic of training the animal, and the, and the author cites this and says. It, 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 it's not from you. It's it's you are using the knowledge that God gave you to train an animal, so you can't torture an animal because that is not part of the divine knowledge. Just in, in you know these these passages that were written in the Islamic tradition so casually, um, but that reflected a world of ethical consciousness. Okay. Oh, okay, because I, I skipped ahead a bit. So... So... And also, madhubi an nusub, also forbidden, is not just animals beaten to death or animals that fell to death or animals that were killed by, uh, um, pre, um, by um, what do you call it? Um, Birds of prey. Huh? Birds of prey. Uh, animals of prey. And, yeah, animals of prey. Um, but around Mecca the Kaaba used to be surrounded by these altars that were used to sacrifice animals and of course the the pre-islamic arabs would have, like a lot of uh, old practices would they would use the sacrificial blood a, as a form of, of performing rituals to various gods and goddesses and so on but yeah muhammad asad just tra- translates it as idolatrous altars that whatever is killed on an altar other than for Allah and and Muslims don't kill an animal on an altar anyway um that is you, you can't consume that meat and included in the abolished practices, al-istiqsam bil-islam, which in, again, pre-Islamic practices, a form of divination, was basically what they, what they did is that they, they, there are arrows, and these arrows are all marked with different coded colors. And certain colors mean, um, you know, go ahead. Certain colors mean you have to sacrifice X number of animals. Other colors mean absolutely not. And people would go and they would pay money for the priest to then tell them, the what they ought, what they should do by pulling out certain arrows and basically divining the future divination of the future whether through the use of arrows or through the use of stars or the use of um you, you know the um, even sand and stone were used to divine the future, or um, uh, uh, even the, the one of the oldest practices was to spill blood and watch the flow of blood, and then the 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 priest would divine the future by the way the blood flows on the ground. All forms of divination was. And for our modern mind, it's sort of, so so what? But you have to understand that for the medieval mind, to prohibit divination was nothing short of a revolution. Because in the medieval mind, it was firmly believed that the future is encoded in various things in nature whether the, the way birds fly, whether the way fish swim, the, whether the, the way the wind blows, the way that you read the stars, at, nature is constantly encoded with the future of people who matter. Not all people, but people who matter. Because nature itself differentiated between the status of people certain people were not worth for worthy of nature divining anything for while of course you know kings and princesses and royalty and so on this these are and part of the reason that there was so much resistance even after islam because forms of divination continued to exist even after the islamic revelation throughout history, is because they were so culturally embedded, but to transform your relationship to nature, to this covenantal relationship with the divine, which Allah, as we will see Surah Al-Ma'idah, reminds us, like Surah Al-Baqarah did, that Allah has repeatedly told human beings, this is what monotheism is about. Monotheism is to includes ridding oneself of all form of superstition and mythology, and surrendering to the premise that all faith and all willpower belongs in the one and only God is such a radical departure. And it failed. It consistently failed among human beings. And this is why Allah kept sending prophets to bring back the premises of monotheism. And Muhammad was the final bearer of that message. I mean, allow this to sink in. All good and evil. all thinking about fate, the very notion of willpower is all contingent on that covenantal relationship with with the divine. That in itself is a revolution. We'll come back to it. Because Surah Al-Ma'idah comes back to it. Okay. So, Al-Istiqsam al-Islam is described, that that means the, the emphasis that this is truly sinful to surrender to any form of divination or to surrender to divination. And... Here, when in Surah Al Ma'idah, the proclamation that put at least the closest people to the Prophet, on the one hand, it was, they understood what the Quran was saying, but on the other hand, it created a substantial amount of concern and anxiety that we are approaching the end of the companionship of the Prophet because Allah comes at this occasion and tells him akmaltu lakum that now your religion has been completed. I've perfected Muhammad Asad translated, I perfected your religious law for you. What he means by this is that, that he imagines that Surah Al-Ma'idah Allah was because we're approaching the end Allah is making sure all the religious laws are are finalized. But it is not the religious laws that are being finalized. It is the religious laws and the ethical laws that Allah is saying be conscious that now I've said everything you need to know Allah is not referring to what the revelation just said about meat or about chair or even about al birr or taqwa or even about justice. Allah is referring Everything that preceded this revelation. And you have now received the full blessing. It's like saying, now I am relinquishing the trust to your hands. وَرَضِيتُ لَكُمُ الْإِسْلَامَ And this I mean رَضِيتُ would and first appearance would seem to read that and I'm content that Islam has become your religion but Islam remember, is the religion of all the monotheistic prophets. It is the religion of Ibrahim, and Isa, and Musa, and all the prophets. The message here is, again, now I've entrusted you with the truth of what Islam is. It's like, Allah has accompanied you in this revelation. For the past 20 years, you have been the recipients of repeated instructions. There is no other prophet. There is no other revelation. The entire trust of Islam is left now in your hands. But this is particularly, as we will see in Surah Al-Ma'idah, this is particularly why it becomes critical that Allah reminds Muslims again of the message started with Surah Al-Baqarah that your relationship to Islam is not a matter of status. It's a matter of service. How you are going to serve, that it's like, remember again, the whole notion of the covenant, that if Allah says, I've gifted you, or I now put my trust in you, with the message of Islam, what bundle of obligations and duties, what bundle of covenantal obligations and duties, attach to the rida, that entrustment that Allah has of Islam to us, when especially when we bear in mind that this is the Islam of all the prophets, so what we are in fact inheriting is the message of the entire line of prophets in the monotheistic faith. The Sha'ir might be different, as we will see, but the core of the message itself is the same. Okay. So now that you are entrusted with this faith, it's, and as Surah Al Ma'idah will clarify in, in, as we go on, that while the sha'ir that Allah decreed to different people in the core message might have been different and in fact will remain different, because as Surah al-Ma'idah clarifies, that the Shire of the Jews are different from the Sha'ar of the Christians, are different from the Sha'ar of Muslims. But that core message itself is one in which you are entrusted with at its core to the covenantal relationship, as we will see. Okay. What time is it? Oh, it's 920, and we are at verse 4. Okay, the good news is that, you know, that means the halaqat might continue for a while. Um, You know, because at this pace, you know, we need maybe another year to get through Surat al-Ma'idah. No, I'm kidding. It's not going to be a year. Um, okay, let's stop here and, and uh, because there, there's just there's a lot and I, I don't trust myself to say anything else without going another hour so I'm going to stop here. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> Rabbil Alameen. Next, next, uh, next halakha, inshallah uh, will be strange because Grace will not be here to introduce it um, who's going to introduce it? Marwa. Marwa's introducing it. It's be <laughs> is it Cheyenne? No. Marwa. It to That's oh. they, it. Okay, they they can't agree on who's going to introduce it. They're arguing. So uh, well, someone will introduce it, or or I'll just start without an introduction, which is, you know, sort of, but anyway,
0: We're Jana.
1: they're still arguing. Okay, <laughs> even Sharif is not going to be here, and Joe is not going to be here. <laughs> I'm being abandoned by everyone. They're all <laughs> Can
0: you skip one Saturday?
1: We can see we can see the first trader on camera right now. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Trader number one. Oh
0: well uh, the
1: first trader was Ramin. Oh
0: exactly. <laughs> no, he, he's been a trader for a long time. I mean, okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> and then the second trader and then
0: the third crazy. trader <laughs> I know. Happy birthday, Woodski. Yay! <laughs> um, I don't know if she can hear you. What, what did you say? I so don't care. Oh, well, I'm not passing that on. <laughs> me
1: um, said something mean to you. Of Witski. course,
0: it's, he's sending love, <laughs> as is usual. So, Mr. um oh my gosh, what a start to Surah Ma'ida and we're m- verse four, woohoo! <laughs> um, but it's so you you just feel the weight of it. I mean, obviously, the idea, even just the idea that this is the very last revelation in Medina, and that the Prophet, peace be upon him, died 80 or 81 days after its conclusion, is just mind blowing. Um, and you know, just a few highlights. I didn't get through everything because yeah, I just felt like there was just so much. Um, but you know, sharing with us that you know, no one has said that the Surah sura Maida is sort of the natural conclusion to Surah Bakara. baqarah excited to see how that develops. Um, and just reminding us again that there, um, you know, how Surah Bakara came to really um, make it clear that there is no such thing as a chosen people. There's no set fate. No caste system, no predestination, um, which is so liberating at so many levels. And and then just to underscore the whole idea of the covenantal relationship between Allah and human beings, how Allah teaches us principles and values, and that our relationship with Allah is in direct proportion to how we embody those principles and values. Um, And just to start with a very powerful command to honor our obligations keep our word honor our word um and the idea you know of sha'ir, um, or the or rituals uh, in quotes right now as you continue to develop that um but the idea that even if you don't understand them that these are things that we are obligated to honor and they're built on things that are not accessible to human reason and i think the whole discussion again about um, the book "What Is Islam" is really important for us now because that that has had such an impact on people, um, and so it's sort of stunning when you know that that backdrop, and then now you delve into Surah, you know, Al-Maida, and you, and you study these verses about about honoring uh, Sha'al. Um and then just the discussion on sacred months and sacred meat, and even the support of people, like not getting in the way of people who are going to pilgrimage. And then you know, like thinking about what's happening right now in in Mecca and in the Haram, and what you know, everything from things being built, you know, taller than the Kaaba to um, just the, the you know, really like the loss of the ethic of of egalitarianism of. You know, no distinction between the the wealthy and the poor, and and all of those things that um, really stunning that that has happened, um, and just wondering like, okay, what what's going to happen? You know, obviously Allah has made it very clear what we're supposed to do, and when you see how blatantly those things have been um, discarded, it's it's a it's it's frightening, and I think that just the feeling again like. The whole tenor of this surah being so weighty like this is the last you know this is what I leave you with and it's not just about Islam for just what came to the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him but for all of the prophets um, and now I entrust you with this is, is It is terrifying honestly and um, so anyway I, I'm so excited to continue um, So I'm not going to be here in person, but I will join the virtual team, (laughs) the the interactive group, um, because I'm actually, I'm going to go visit my parents. And so that's, and, you know, honoring that obligation. So um, inshallah, Um, otherwise I would not, I would not leave because this is just too, too wonderful. And um, so anyway, these guys are going to just have to like, (laughs) <laughs> I'm gonna decide who's going to do do the introduction no but actually I, I'm excited I, I want actually I want personally um, Marwa to come share some of the really exciting things that have been happening with the prophet's pulpit because I actually um, the messages that we continue to receive from all points in the world are are truly like humbling and exciting and um You know we we've like we're still working on our little map with putting you know the dots on but we just haven't had time because there have just been so many (laughs) demands for books all around the world but when you hear the stories and you read the emails that we get um from people who are so touched so excited so honored you know um just to be able to get a copy of this book that either they they can't afford or they can't find where they are or you know just for whatever reason um, they're they're just so so grateful and you know, from our perspective, it's exciting because this is sharing that, that really beautiful, liberating, Quranic message, you know, um, what, everything we've been learning here in the Tafsir, And I, I oftentimes, we talk about, like, the Prophet's pulpit as being kind of the Tefsir light, you know, because it's hard to jump in and do, like, six-hour halakas and, you know, really, like, do these intensive deep dives. But <clears throat> the Prophet's pulpit is so powerful because you, you're taking that, that core, the essence of the message we're learning here, and then just applying it to our world and trying to normalize the theme of us as Muslims being active and justice oriented and you know at at the forefront of the world and thinking and engaging things and having common sense right and and speaking about our religion in a way that is compelling and heartwarming and exciting and and intuitive. Like that's just something that we just don't seem to get in many Muslim spaces, sadly. So it's really exciting when we can share that book, which is really a beautiful, like physically beautiful book, and then spiritually, you know, internally very beautiful book with people all around the world and creating that connection so people don't feel so lonely and they don't feel gaslit when they hear something in their religion that they don't they don't feel in their heart or in their mind. So um, I just, I, I would love for, for you know, Marwa to just sh- share some of that so everyone understands, like, how many people, where are they coming from, what are some of the messages, because it's heartwarming and it actually adds something to all of our community. Even if we're not physically together, we're connected, you know, and so alhamdulillah for at least technology in our world for, for that, that good, that goodness. Um, so anyway, um, I will join you virtually <laughs> next week. But in the meantime, um, inshallah inshallah, um, I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us um, on this really monumentous surah. <laughs> this whole journey. Um, and yeah, enjoy your last couple weeks of December 2022. Um, but anyway, salam alaikum. Have a great week. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.